This week, I'm joined by the brilliant Darren Thompson, Kiln Associate and Entrepreneur. Join us in an in-depth conversation about the Black Lives Matter movement, why we should avoid using the term BAME, how change comes from within, and what life in digital is like for the black community. My name is Darren Thompson, um, 20 years uh, in the digital industry, cross platforms, digital out of home, online and press. But, you know, currently furloughed, uh, unfortunately, like a yeah, majority uh, of, the, of the UK market at the moment. I'm trying to take the positives out of this. So I've been working with my friend and business partner, Ben, for a good few years now. And he's founded a company called Kiln, which has worked with tech innovators, elevating their ideas. Um, so they can speak and kind of catch fire. So in the media tech space, so through the years of experience that we both have, you know, we bring digital media has given us wealth of knowledge um, and allowed us to craft the right solution tailored to our partners' needs with a particular focus on strategy, products and business development. And uh, it's something that I'm proud to be a part of um, promoting Kiln out there in the ether. So, yeah, previously my experience was head of sales at Teeds, um, being furloughed from, unfortunately, just just premium. I wish them all the best, but unfortunately COVID has affected many, uh, like I'm sure many people that are listening to this podcast, it's uh, affected us in a negative way, but we have to take positives, remain strong and keep out there going. So that's me, Darren Thompson. One of the reasons that we started this conversation was off the back of a conversation you'd had with Ed, um, Sphere's founder, CEO. And I think into that conversation came the fact that you had started a podcast, Kiln Radio, um, and that one of the, the topics of that podcast was the Black Lives Matter movement. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? And then I guess from our side, we thought uh, that you were just a brilliant voice for us to bring into the conversation, um, just to talk not just about media, but also to talk about digital as a whole, especially as you, as you said, with your consultancy, you are representing different, different parts of that. We get asked a lot about what we can be doing or what companies can be doing in light of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think rather than ticking a few boxes, the conversation we're going to have is more about uh, looking at the bigger picture and the systematic things that we need to resolve. Um, and that's where, where you come in. Yeah, I think um, my relationship with Ben, uh, Ben's been um, building Kiln for a long while. Mm-hmm. And part of the development of, 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 the, of the property was to interview people in the tech space um, about their experiences. Um, we started off with, with me as an interviewee, but we touched slightly on my experience as a black man in media. Um, mm-hmm. we, we hit on that. And then obviously George Floyd happened. Um, and that I got on the phone to Ben. I said, Ben, I think, you know, just for my own soul, I, I think we need to have this discussion. And I think it'd be great because... Ben, you're white and I'm black. And I also have a really good friend of mine, Chris, mm-hmm. um, who wrote this really powerful letter called Letter to My White Friends. He's a Harvard graduate, so he's far more eloquent than I can ever be. But he um, wrote this letter and it was so powerful and so moving for the fact that it was hit on the nail on the head from all the emotions and feeling that I was sort of channeling through my body at that time that I wanted to sort of help him and, and provide him a platform to maybe do my little bit of part to to help him move that narrative that, that little bit further. So Ben agreed, um, read the letter, it had, it came on the same page as me and it kind of all happened naturally. Um, so by all means, if you're listening, um, go out there and, and, and 
figure out the letter to my white friends by Chris Lambert. It's an amazing mm -hmm. piece. Well, very well written. Takes two sides of the coin. Um, but yeah, so we had the narrative when we were speaking about it, but what we realized through the prep for that, that and through the various conversations I've had with people of color that are friends of mine uh, and family members is that we all had very, very similar experiences going through our careers in various channels, you know, and we, it's one of those things you can't quite put your finger on, you can't quite mm. place, can't quite prove, but you all, everybody feels that. Mm. And if you're a person of color and you're having a conversation that you haven't really had before, but everybody's having a similar experience, you mm. fundamentally know that there's a systemic problem that exists out there. Through the conversations with Chris, through the conversations with Ben, we just wanted to put it out there onto this podcast and hopefully get it received very well and it has been received and picked up very well so I'm, I'm glad you got for you guys for listening so I've, I've listened to the podcast and uh, we'll link it below so people can find out a little bit more about what that discussion was and um, one of the things that I really resonated within the workplace and we touched on it on our when we had our first call was about microaggressions um, and it, you mentioned it there, it's something that you can't quite pin your, what's the saying? <laughs> put your foot up. Okay, um, you, can't, you can't put your, put your finger on it, yeah. you can't quite, you can't put your quite finger prove. On it, but yeah. you know it's there and, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about your experience of the workplace. This is something that we, we spoke about previously, but in that podcast you were talking about not bringing it just to your own experiences because then that gives somebody a reason to have an opinion almost. Mm. Uh, so I don't know how you, are you comfortable still going down the route I'm of the chair? I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable because I can only talk from my experiences, but yeah, I, you know, that's I can my talk thing. So, so yeah, so regards to, to microaggressions, they happen um, more often than, than you would like. And mm -hmm. I think as, as, a, as a person of colour um, growing up, in the digital industry, which is my experience, I can talk talk of. Um, they, they 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 happen, and, and you have to kind of choose every single moment that they happen, and mm. choose how you would react. And most part, you react, and then you think back on it and think, I wish I reacted in a certain way. I wish I had that opportunity to educate that individual that they shouldn't be saying that. But if you come out and educate that person in that time, in that moment, it can be perceived as you are being the angry black man. So given a, a case in point, for example, you know, there's been plenty of times where, you know, for, for want of uh, lack of embarrassment, you know, I've, I've had um, references to the size of my manhood uh, just because I'm the black guy in the room. You know, I've got three beautiful children. I've been married to uh, to my wife for 10 years, almost, uh, eight years, sorry, uh, and been together for 24 years, my childhood sweetheart. But when I mention that I have three kids, the I've had microaggressions where people say, oh, with the same mother, you know, what, why would, why would they be any different to a friend of mine, Joe Bloggs over here, who's got three kids. Do you have asked him that same question? Um, I've had microaggressions where I've gone into a board meetings or finished, um, finished conversations with clients. And instead of going to a handshake, they've tried to give me a fist bump or, you know, it, it, it's things like that, that, you know, that's happened countless times. And they, those are just kind of the lighter examples that I can put my, put my finger on. Um, you know, being called Denzel when my name's quite clearly Darren, but they feel that that's a, 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 a more suitable name for me. And that's the, the, the nickname they've been cho chosen to give me. Uh, you know, things, things like that have happened in, in, in the past. But I don't want to sort of dwell on those, those, those things, mm -hmm. but I do want to let, let people know that that's just, that's, that, those are lighter examples from uh, experience that I have, which I can only speak from. But these examples of microaggressions happen daily 
hourly to some people of color, you know, not even black per se. I've, I know through, through friends of mine who are from Asian uh, descent, who culturally are very, very different. They don't really have the drinking culture because they, they maybe have, have moved over here and, and the, their religious beliefs are, are don't, just don't allow them to, but then, then they feel uncomfortable in that situation. So, you know, this, this will refer to maybe a, a topic we'll talk about later, but this is why we shouldn't bundle all of our, our experiences into one uh, and calling it big fame uh you know we, we should we should call it something else because our experience is all very very different based depending on our cultural heritage uh our, our, our skin tone and 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 you know what our experiences have led up to the point we're in now can you talk a little bit more about fame because that came up in our last conversation i know a lot of companies are looking to that terminology to to kind of right some wrongs almost um and you had some interesting insight as to why we shouldn't blanket many ethnicities as just one term. And um, um, could you just speak a little bit more? What it is basically doing is, is, is bundling all ethnicities that are different from Caucasian into yeah. one bucket. <laughs> yeah. And saying that, you know, we're trying to solve all that issue. In, in Put that there, put that aside there. This company is solving all that issues over there. We're calling it BAME. And we've got BAME written on our on our collateral out there and BAME is something that we're sorting out because we're, we're trying to solve the issues of non-white problems and it's yeah. all over there in BAME. If you're a person of color, if you're Asian, if you're, if you're, if you're brown, you're, you're, you're not, no one identifies themselves as BAME. No one's going to come up to me and say, oh Darren, what do you identify as? And on, on a poll, I'm going to say BAME is that I'm yeah. going to say who I am, what I am. And my experience is very different from an Asian experience. It's very different from uh, a female of color experience. It's very different from, you know, a Chinese experience uh, mm -hmm. in the UK workplace. So, so put bundling BAME as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an acronym and saying we are talking to, to these points it just doesn't feel that I'm getting heard. It just feels mm -hmm. that you're just building a, 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 a bucket to bundle yep. us in and tick a box and move on yeah. because you're not actually decimating what that is and hearing me from my own individual experience. Mm -hmm. It's kind of othering. Yeah. The yeah. Uh, in the podcast that you did with Chris and Ben, um, I think it came up a bit about uh, what happened in light of the Me Too movement, but with women. So, they were able to go into the workplace and really make some some huge shifts in not only the data that's coming out so that we can be more critical about representation of women and men in companies. And I think it was Chris who was saying, what, what is there being used um, for people of color, uh, different ethnicities, um, I don't know if you have an answer for this, but I thought I would just maybe elaborate yeah, on that yeah. point and think, what other steps could we be doing that aren't, uh, yeah, just ticking some boxes. I think what Chris was talking about was, was yeah, I know what he was talking about, was that, you know, that change doesn't come from board level. If you mm -hmm. look at, a, at most boards um, sitting around a table, they're all predominantly white men. Um, and what happened to enable that change was the change came from within. It came from the females rising up together, standing up pay and, and, and coordinating and, and jumping on uh, uh, 
uh, a narrative that you know we're not going to stand for this anymore um and we want to know we want to hold you accountable as to why there aren't women being considered for these senior board level members and this this drew up the the me too movement pushed on a light on it but it blew up to an empty degree where all women said yeah i have had these experiences yes these are uh, my experiences and they and i'm not going to be tolerating them anymore and we're going to talk about them we're going to put them out in the ether we're not going to we're not going to let that narrative die and then you know from from that the systemic change from within companies and establishments have meant they've had to stand up and go if we want to consider uh, uh, our, our opportunity and our growth moving forward we need to consider this voice this mm -hmm. voice is very very powerful because they're uniform and it's one and it's not just us it's everyone that's talking about this and i think that's the kind of feeling that we are getting now with the black lives matter movement mm -hmm. which is more so than ever before i feel that you know if you're a person of color that these issues george floyd isn't the first black guy mm -hmm. that's been killed in a horrific way by the police but it's also not just an american issue it's a uk issue that happens as well with profiling um getting people of the of 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 you know high education um but just because they're black wearing a hoodie walking down a, a street which is predominantly white they're going to get profiled or uh, asked what they're doing there do you know what i mean that's happened to me countless times before i've never been in trouble with the police um educated black man with beautiful family living in the suburbs mm -hmm. so you know these these things happen but we need to have this voice we need to have this narrative continue and companies need to be made aware that this is something that is not going to go away and black people are feeling a certain way and will continue to feel a certain way because this has ignited a movement that is happening globally. The mm. narrative is out there and, you know, you, your companies jump on board and be on board with this mm -hmm. to help move this narrative forward. And, you know, that's what that's how the, the female Me Too movement helped get more board members into that boardroom mm. that were female. So hopefully this movement, if companies can jump on board and hear the voices from within and hear the frustrations and, and actually understand the problems and the nuances behind those problems, then this could help us as people have equal parity with our peers as well. And what do you think is different about this movement? Because like you said, this isn't the first black man to be killed in America and it's not the first protest, but there was something really different about these protests, especially the one that was near me in Vauxhall, obviously, where the American embassy, the embassy yeah, American embassy, huge with a moat that uh, was, and I think what's been picked up a lot more is it wasn't just black bodies in the crowd, it was so diverse. What do you think it is about this particular movement that, that has changed? I think it was the perfect storm. I think, obviously, the narrative that was being pushed out by the news was COVID, 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 mm -hmm. but solidly for months. There was no other news. <laughs> there yeah. wasn't anything else really that was worth even talking about. It was how our country was dealing with COVID, how other countries were dealing with COVID, how, you know, how many deaths, how many cases. And it was just like a, a constant storm of, of COVID conversation. Mm -hmm. And then this brave young girl films George Floyd getting unfairly um, arrested and then killed in broad daylight with a guy kneeling on his neck, smirking at the camera and believing that he had every right to be able to be restraining that individual in that vicious 
and uncallous and unthoughtful way with all of his colleagues turning around for eight minutes, 36 seconds, understanding that this is going on and no one making that human instinct, that human effort to take him away from it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that news put out there with everybody on lockdown, looking at something that is completely different to the COVID narrative that was running before, helped drive this globally uh, as seen as, a, as an abhorrent act. And um, that is what I think was why this movement's happened. But, you know, if you're a person of colour, you, you're fully aware of this is this, you know, if you look back in the previous three months leading up to George Floyd, there was Breonna Taylor, who unfairly mm -hmm. got um, shot in her bed while she was sleeping because they got the wrong address and it was the next door neighbour they needed to go after. Uh, you had uh, Ahmad Aubrey, who was chased down by while he was jogging by three guys and shot in the back and killed because black running in the wrong neighbourhood. So those kind of were those kind of um, incidents happened, and they were just kind of like they were shocking, and they were on camera. Well, Ahmad Aubrey was on camera, but they weren't really picked up on as much. Mm. But then George Floyd was the was the was the hat trick of of those that we were kind of like, this is enough. This is enough. And it, because it's that the eight long minutes and 36 seconds, and because of the, the, the powerful speeches and powerful rallies and powerful narrative that came out of that, and the celebrities that were back in it, and social media was, everybody was in front of their faces and celebrities were bombarding you with, 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 with how bad this was and how they're feeling about it and showing you, you know, movements of, of people just uprising and marching in the street. And, I think because of that and because of the feeling and the movement that kind of arose from it, it unlocked this box inside of most of the people of colour that I have been speaking to, that mm -hmm. is this the time? Is this the time now we can actually say about our frustrations? Because, you know, I've had conversations with, with good friends of mine of colour for years that we've never had this conversation. We've never spoken about the frustration. We, we maybe joke about it in, in, in passing, but we've never sat down and say, actually, this happens and this is how I feel about it. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, I've had my neighbour phone me and he said, um, Darren, he was talking to, to me about his experience about articulating what's going on to his 12 year old. And I also mm -hmm. had a similar experience because he's on social media and I was it affected me deeply to my soul where, you know, you talk about um, depression and depression is another issue that is out there in the ether. But I've never felt in my life, I can honestly say, I never felt like I've been truly depressed, but I couldn't raise a smile for mm -hmm. a good two weeks because all of these emotions, these microaggressions, these, these situations that I can clearly remember distinctly, every single one, and I can look back throughout my whole life and remember every single, single time that I've said, not said, acted, reacted, not acted um, to certain situations and had to put it into a box and say, this is just how it is, because if you're mm -hmm. of colour, this is how it is. Then that is what all came out and it all just arose. And every single person of colour I spoke to felt that pain. I walked into Sainsbury's and saw a, a, a person of colour, a black girl standing behind Sainsbury's. I said, how are you doing? She said, yeah, I'm fine. Gave me the honest answer. And I said, no, no, seriously, how are you doing? And she cried. And that's how every single black person was feeling, because mm -hmm. also the narratives they were having where you would go and you would speak to people and they would say, 
oh well, I can't. I believe in the. Uh, I believe all black, all lives matter. And why are they looting? What's this looting about? It's just missing the point. Mm-hmm. You know, the missing, the clear and apparent point is that I have worked my life to get to the success that I have. But I've felt like I've had to work that extra bit. I felt like I've had to um, overcome certain things that are not said and certain nuances that I can't prove to mm. get to where I am today. And I think that every person of colour that I know and speak to in this industry have unfortunately had similar experiences that they can speak of, whether they've had it growing up from where they've maybe grown up in black communities and then moved out to a white area and then started realising it, or they've now worked out of the black communities, black schools, and then gone into a white uh, work environment and they start feeling it then, and they're not used to how to combat that or how to react to that. And you have to learn this weird game and this weird dance that you have to to hold with you to sort of say, right, well, this one, I'll let that one go. Because I know inherently this person isn't racist, but that's very ignorant. And therefore I'm categorizing you as ignorant, but not a nice guy. Do you know what I mean? And it's, it's yeah. unfortunately, that is just the way it is. And that's the way it has been. And I think if we have this conversation like we are having now, mm. more and more companies can understand. And, and I urge companies, if they have people of color or if they have, um, you know any ethnic uh diverse uh uh staff take them aside and just have a conversation just ask them how they're feeling ask them how they're doing hold the light up to what you have the experience of that's right there that that ask and 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 expect to be shocked or expect to be given an honest opinion because those voices have not been heard and those voices never been heard and we're not saying that companies are inherently racist we're not saying that you know you you you're you're restricting us in some way what we are saying is that you're not giving potentially us the opportunity that we need to have mm-hmm. to be able to further ourselves yeah. and that's why if you look at the the statistics black people tend to drop out of the media industry specifically uh, at a certain point because mm-hmm. they feel there is no point yeah the opportunities aren't afforded to them mm. i'd quite like to talk Sorry, that was a very long answer to no, it's good. and there's lots of points in there but the one that i am um, would be good to just elaborate a bit further on is as, as i said to you at the start of this conversation companies are coming to us as a recruitment company um looking at the beginning of the problem which is hiring are you are you even hiring people of color um and black people uh and i think something that has come up with the conversation with you is okay you've hired a black person but then what next like what things are happening in those companies where those people aren't reaching a director level where they're not the decision maker and i i think if you can and if you're willing to i'd quite like to look at that bit i mean first of all um i want to i want to make it clear that i don't want and I don't think any black person wants to be given an opportunity purely because of the color of their skin. Yeah. I just think they want to be given an opportunity <laughs> to prove that they are as good as any other candidate that's out there. Mm-hmm. So if you believe that that person is better, then then hire that person. If you don't believe that person is better, then don't hire that person. It's mm-hmm. as simple as that. Um, but what I am saying is is that there there are certain things that companies can do. Um, 
companies can affiliate themselves with universities, schools, colleges uh, in areas where they're predominantly black candidates. They maybe not realise that media or digital is an opportunity that they can move into. Go and have talks, go and give presentations, go and talk about your wares. You'd be surprised at the level of talent and knowledge and experience that these kids have. They're all entrepreneurs, they're all on social media, they're all building their TikTok videos, they're all doing this kind of amazing stuff that could be a fundamental asset to any company that's out there, but they don't know that, that experience or that opportunity exists. So embrace the the youth that's out there that's 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 doing great things. There's a company called Imagine, um, who a guy called Jay and a good friend of mine, Kat Agostina, is working for, who basically they've built and developed a, a Gen Z audience by going to schools and help providing a non-condescending narrative to the Gen Z audience by, by having communications and comms with the Gen Z uh, age group and talking to them and helping them plan and pitch to companies that have of high ilk and high established uh, uh, brands um, to, to make sure the narrative talks directly to that Gen Z audience. And Imagine is, is their name, Jay and, and Kat Agostino. There's another company, a PR company called um, The Unmistakables, where a good friend mm -hmm. of mine, Simone and Ben, um, work for. They basically give a non-condescending voice um, to companies talking to uh, the, you know, the ethnic communities. Um, and they do brilliant work in helping their companies do great PR um, to, to, the right, to the right audiences. They're doing great things, they're doing wonderful things, but companies need to, to invest and have a conversation. And it's, it's, don't be shy of the conversation by the people of color in, 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 in the room and say, and maybe build a focus on what direction and growth needs of that individual um, is after. It's a weird and nuanced, um, divisive uh, question because in essence, there are people that are gonna say, well, you know, I've worked this hard and I've not got a management level of experience. So, and I, why should this person now suddenly get one because of the color of their skin? Mm -hmm. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that maybe it's afforded to you more because look around you, there's 95% of this, this, this company is, is white. Why is that? Do you know what I mean? It, 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 why is it that, you know, I've been at companies where the black people are dropping like flies because, you know, why is that? <laughs> why is that? You have to answer that question. Why? Why is there no retention of, of black talent? What What yeah. is it about the, the talent that's out there that, that people seem aren't trusted? And that's where we've raised the question of systemic racism because mm -hmm. people will tend to hire and promote people that tend to look like them. And mm -hmm. if there's more people that look like me, then yes, of course, I will give more of an opportunity, an open opportunity to people of color because I know that that person is as equally as talented as the white guy that's coming after you or before you, you know what I mean? So having the conversation first, educating yourself and learning second, talking to companies that understand the narratives outside of your individual nuanced understanding, educating yourself, reading books, reading dialogue, um, but just also making it sure that you are open to having the conversation around mm -hmm. about colour and not being afraid to have it. Mm -hmm. I've had some really solid and good contacts, senior contacts, phone me up and just ask me how they're doing with regards to this issue. And they've asked me an open and honest, frank conversation. And I respect those people highly for having that conversation with me openly. 
because it means that they care. It also means that they understand there's an issue. It also means that they understand there's, there's a problem and maybe they're a problem they weren't aware of before. I don't have the full answer for this. It starts a lot sooner than education uh, from a university leavers degree. It starts from, the, from parenting, having the conversation. You can be non-racist, but it doesn't mean that if you don't talk to your kids about racism, that though your kids can't say something in the playground that would be perceived inherently as racist. Yeah. They're going to be picking up, you know, music videos or things off YouTube now. Kids are ingesting videos in a very, very different way than, than we, we had when we were growing up. And so mm -hmm. they're picking up um, dialogue and ways of speaking that, you know, they feel is cool, but it's not right when you're putting that dialogue to, to a person of colour. So it starts early, it starts from parenting <laughs> and it's something needs to change. But you know, what companies can do is be aware that this issue exists, mm -hmm. be open, have an open door policy. Don't bucket BAME together because that's not a thing and no one wants that thing to be a thing. Um, and speak to people of color or ethnic diverse um, members in your teams and understand how they're feeling. Mm -hmm. And open yourself up to giving them opportunities and giving them a chance to prove that they can break through that glass ceiling and be at board level because trust me you might be surprised but what i would like to to kind of really ring true is is how recruiters could yeah maybe work better with getting black talent in and I think I mentioned it without going to schools and talking to these PR companies yeah, and, and, and stuff but any insights that you have being on the other end and I can give you like my first job was in recruitment so I've uh, obviously now I work in marketing but seeing it from different angles has been interesting and like the inner workings of how we go about hiring um, I mean, something that you mentioned earlier was names. Like, it seems like such a simple thing, but I think, uh, and it kind of goes along hand with familiarity. We kind of look to these names that we recognize and are people then, uh, even on an unconscious level, picking up the phone to the names that they can pronounce. Mm. Um, little things like that is uh, something that, it's just we need to be aware of it and once you're aware of it it's a lot harder to keep doing it i think because you're aware that that thing that you're doing i can't pronounce this name uh yeah. is is a microaggression and actually you're not affording that opportunity to someone who could be able to do the job because well, um, just the, the term microaggression it, it, it kind of it, it pokes a bear in some people's uh, sentimentalities it's it, not necessarily every single person has a conscious I'm not going to hire this black person. It's not happening in their psyche. So therefore they feel affronted when you're saying that they are. Um, mm -hmm. But ultimately they don't realize that the hurtful thought process or the hurtful things that they say, say leads to being a microaggressive. Um, and even I would, might do it to an Asian person or um, you know, a Muslim, you know I mean? I, I, I don't know much about that culture. So I might say something which is offensive by any way or, or place someone from Israel uh, against Palestine because I haven't got the knowledge. So yeah. when I have those interactions, I, I will then tend to go, right, well, let me see why in that instance, I've annoyed that person in a way because that's the kind of person I am. Let me do some reading. And that's all we're asking everybody to do is do some bloody reading. <laughs> Yeah, and I will list 
um, like loads. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are there any that you would you would recommend? I've got like pretty long lists, but yeah, I bought a book yesterday. Um, it's very, it's, it's a lot of it's American based. And there's a lot of American, but there's been I've read a few that were pretty British that were pretty good. The why I'm no longer talking to white people about race is um, yeah. Well, I'm no longer talking about white white people like race. I've read that book. That's a really good book. Um, then there's one called Stamped from the Beginning. Yeah, I just finished that. Amazing. Um, which is an amazing book. It's one of the prize. Anything that he's done is is amazing. Um, how to be an anti-racist as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and then there is one that is if if people if kids want if they want to educate their kids. There's a book called This Book is Anti-Racist by Tiffany Jewell and it's aged at nine plus. So if anyone wants a, a quick and easy read, it's a, yeah. it's a nine plus. There's one called Ghost Boys by Jewel Parker. And these are these are, 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 are fictional books that are aimed at, geared at talking to young kids and letting them understand the experience of, of racism. There's The Clean Getaway by Nick Stone. And then there's The Faraway Truth by Janae Marks. These are books that are more geared towards, you know, young kids, but it's a good start for people to understand that, you know, it starts from early. But then obviously stamped from the beginning and why I'm not talking to my white friends about race anymore is, is, is another good one. There's mm-hmm. thousands of books, but I don't expect everybody to read them all. But there's loads of podcasts as well. No, I was just going to say, um, with the resources, I think uh, there's obviously so much out there, but something that came up in your podcast was about empathy. Um, and uh, when we have empathy, it's much easier for us to make decisions that um, take into account how someone else is feeling. But a lot, some, I think I've recognised, especially in the past year and a bit, that some people don't have empathy, or at least they don't have as much as others. Yeah. And if you are that person, then uh, reading and watching and listening is a great way to learn empathy. It's harder work, I think, if you don't inherently have empathy, but there are tools for you to build empathy. Mm. Um, I don't know who that is, that message is for, but I think those people... No, I know, I know what you're saying. I yeah. mean, part, you know, the fact that you're able to eloquently talk about the situation and you've... Mm-hmm made the effort of reading the books means that you're inherently an ally and you mm. are one that will notice and recognize those mm. situations and maybe hopefully talk up um when you see things happening unfortunately we need more of you <laughs> um, <laughs> you can build it i think that is a thing like it it's yeah i mean I, I was i was literally I was so, I guess we're off, off, off topic, off script now. I was so, um, I was mourning. I was upset to my core. I felt like it was a death in the fact. I felt like I knew George Floyd personally. I felt that was, that was, that was, that could have been any of us. You know what I mean? It was just a horrible place to be mentally in my mind for a, a long time around the kids, around my wife. I couldn't talk. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't smile. I couldn't be daddy. I couldn't, I was numb. Mm. Going up to the the march and the protests in uh, the embassy and screaming and shouting, but also then 
getting that anger and that frustration out by shouting and screaming, but then, you know, sort of like coming back down to earth and then looking around and realizing that I was surrounded by white people. Mm. That to me was a beautiful moment because it gave me my faith back in this country. Mm. It gave me my faith back in, in it, at that point, I didn't, I, I didn't completely lose faith. I'm married to a white girl, for example. So, you know what I mean? so it's like, it's not to lose faith and, and become all Black Panther and try and go and kill everybody. But you know what I mean? It gave me my faith back in that there are beautiful humans out there mm. that want exactly the same as we want. And they had no reason to be there other than that they see the injustice and mm. they, they, they're standing up against it and they're fighting, they're screaming, they're angered by it. And they, they, they are standing with us shoulder to shoulder. Mm-hmm. And Asian people and people of all religious faiths and it was beautiful. And it was mm-hmm. something that literally turned a switch back on mm-hmm. that had switched off for a moment inside my heart. Yeah. And that enabled me to start smiling. And it's taken me a while, but now I can honestly say I'm, 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 I'm back to being myself again. A huge thank you to Darren for being so generous with his time and for sharing his experiences with us. If you want to find out more about Darren and the work he is doing with Kiln, we will link to his profile in the show notes. We'll also include all references there, including Chris Lambert's A Letter to My White Friends, a link to Kiln Radio, all books and resources mentioned, and a link to the Black Lives Matter movement website, which shares the ways in which you can support the black community. Show notes can be found in the description box of this podcast. A huge thank you to Darren and see you next week for another episode of Life in Digital.